placebos, pain, and price. You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Gary Cohn, and joining me today is Dr. Dan Ariely, who is a Ph.D. professor of behavioral economics at Duke University and comes to us today from his office in Durham, North Carolina. We're going to be talking about our patients and placebos and conflicts of interest. Dan, thanks for being with us. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Could you tell us a little bit about your scientific and medical backgrounds and how you got interested in some of your research interests? Many years ago, I got injured in an accident. I got burned in 70% of my body, and I spent about three years in hospital. And one of the worst things that happened to anybody in the, in the burn department is the bath treatment. So every day, the nurses would come and would take me on a little forklift and lower me to a, a metal bath with iodine water. And after a quick soak, they would try to tear off my bandages. And it turns out incredibly painful. It's one thing to take a Band-Aid off. It's another thing to take 70% of, of somebody's body when there's no skin. And the bandages really adhere to the, to the flesh. And I used to debate with them what's, what's the right way to do it. But here we were in a treatment that took about an hour to take all my bandages off. And, and what they thought was the right approach was to grab hold of the bandages, bandages one after the other, and rip them off. And I hated the, the intense moment of pain, the, the ripping. And I, we tried to argue with them that it would be better to do it slower and take more time. And they reassured me that I was wrong that they had the right strategy, that ripping it off quickly, getting it over with is the right approach. And they also reminded me that the word patient doesn't mean getting involved. It means sitting there quiet. So I wasn't that quiet, but they did what they did. And then when I left hospital and, and went to university, I took a class on experimental physiology, which we did all kinds of experiments, and I learned about the experimental method. And I started to do experiments on pain. So initially, I didn't have much funding. So I went to a hardware store, and I got a carpenter's vice, and I would bring people into a lab and I would crunch their fingers a little bit. And I would crunch it for longer periods and shorter periods, increasing pain, decreasing pains, with breaks, without breaks. I, I assume you didn't have institutional review of those. Oh, I did. I did, of course. Everything is approved. I had to go personally to the IRB and talk to them. And, and the moment they saw my personal passion and the importance of the question, they allowed me to do it. And after each of those painful experiences, I asked people, so how painful was this? Or how painful was the previous one? And which one would you prefer to do again if you had to choose one of them? And from there, I back deducted the model of how people actually treated pain over time. It's a very general question, by the way. You have experiences that last for some duration. They go up, they go down. At the end of the day, how do you decide how much overall pain you experience? And what turns out to be was that the nurses were wrong. It turns out that when you increase the duration, you don't actually increase the intensity by the same amount. So you can double an experience by duration by twice, the, the intensity only goes up by 15%. But if you increase the intensity, the memory for the, the overall thing goes up dramatically. So mothers and their little children with Band-Aids have been wrong all these years. I didn't do the research on Band-Aids. I looked a little bit under a microscope at Band-Aids. And Band-Aids, I think, also have the hair follicles, which kind of adds a different dynamic to it. So I don't want to, to make a statement on that. But I think with deep pain, and by the way, after this experiment with the vice, I moved to things like electrical shocks and heat and so on. So, so I've covered the whole range of things. I even looked at financial gains and loss in the stock market, which seems to be behaving in the same way. But the thing that kind of bothered me most was that he were the nurses who were great, wonderful people. Actually, one was not, but most of them were fantastic individuals. And they really cared about me. And this was an important issue. It was very painful. It was a long time. This looked like the right ingredients for correct decisions from an economic perspective. People care, 
It's important. They have a lot of practice. Nevertheless, they got it wrong. And nevertheless, they didn't even try to test whether I was correct. And I started wondering about what other things are there in life in which we have wrong intuitions about. And that basically led me to all the research I describe in my book about different ways in which we think we behave one way, but in fact we behave in a different way. If you are just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Gary Cohn, and I'm speaking with Dr. Dan Ariely, and we're talking about our patients and placebos and conflicts of interest. Dan, you uh, earlier this year, you had a book published, Predictably Irrational. Tell us a little bit about some of the things you reported on in that book. So let me describe to you one, one of the chapters in the book that deals with cheating. And it's not because I'm proposing that medical professions are professional cheaters, but it's because I'm proposing that medical professions are people. So here is what happened. I became interested in cheating when, when Enron kind of erupted to the scene. And I started thinking about how could it be that there were so many evil people in one company that were willing to, to deceive by so much. You know, and in total, they stole about $30, $40 billion from the U.S. economy. So it's a, it's a big number. How did this happen? I think, you know, what will happen to other people or, you know, to MIT students and Harvard students and Princeton students and so on? So I devised a simple experiment. I took a sheet with 20 simple math problems that everybody could solve given enough time, but I didn't give people enough time. So if you were a subject, you would get this sheet, 20 questions. I said, I'll pay you a dollar per question. You have five minutes. When the five minutes were up, I would collect it and pay people. It turned out the average person would solve four problems and get $4. Then I took another group, and when the five minutes were over, I asked them to shred the sheet of paper and tell me how many questions they solved correctly. Now the average correct response went to seven. Now, presumably, these are not people who got smarter just because they shred a piece of paper. They just cheated a little bit. Now, in economic terms, we think that people cheat when it's worth more to cheat. Either you get to stand to gain more money, you have a lower probability of being caught, or the punishment that you stand to get is lower. So I tested those things. I paid people different amounts, 10 cents per correct question, 25, 50, $1, $2, $5, $10. Turns out it doesn't matter. Still, a lot of people cheat, but just by a little bit. Then I changed the probability of being caught. Shred the whole sheet, shred half the sheet, shred the whole sheet and leave the room and pay yourself from a bowl of money this is outside of the room. People could have taken a lot of money. Again, a lot of people cheated just by a little bit. So then I said, what, what's happening here? And, and the thought was basically the following. Imagine that we all want to think of ourselves as good, honorable people. But at the same time, we want to benefit from cheating. Maybe there's like a, a resting point, an equilibrium between these two forces. Maybe there's a level of cheating that we can do, but at the same time feel comfortable about ourselves. So how do you test something like this? The first thing I wanted to do was to get people to be less comfortable with cheating. So I got some people to come to the lab, and I said, today we have two experiments. The first one is a memory experiment. Half the people were asked to recall the Ten Commandments. Half the people were asked to recall ten books they read in high school. And then I gave them the same matrix ex experiment where they could have simple math problems. The people who tried to recall the Ten Commandments, and by the way, nobody could recall the Ten Commandments in our sample, didn't cheat when they were tempted to cheat. So just thinking about their own moral code eliminated it. Then we did the same thing with the honor code. We got people to sign a statement that said, I understand that this thing falls under the MIT honor code. No cheating whatsoever. This is despite the fact that MIT doesn't really have an honor code. Right? So they were just signing something. Uh, this, this, by the way, suggests that what people are doing is that they feel comfortable with cheating a little bit but if you remind them about their own moral 
understanding, they stop doing it. And in the medical profession, you can think whether the coat and the stethoscope and whether other symbols like it could actually function as reminders for the professional code of behavior. But here's the most disturbing experiment. The most disturbing experiment was one in which I tried to get people to cheat more. How did I do it? A third of the people got the sheet, they handed it, they saw four. A third of the people shredded it, they came to us and said, Mr. Experimenter, I solved X problems, give me X dollars. We paid them seven dollars. A third of the people, when they shredded the piece of paper, didn't ask us for money, they asked us for tokens. They said, Mr. Experimenter, I solved X problems, give me X tokens. We gave them a token per question, then they walked 12 feet to the side and exchanged the tokens for dollars. What was happening is that they were not cheating for money, they were cheating for something that was one step removed from money. This simple activity doubled our subjects' cheating. This is incredibly worrisome if you think about it. Now think about what does it mean about somebody who is backdating the stock options. This is not one step removed from money and just for a few seconds, it's many steps removed from money. It's not money, it's stocks, it's not stock, it's stock options. It's not asking for more, it's just changing the date a little bit. Could it be that under those circumstances, people who could never steal $100 from a petty cash box could nevertheless dramatically cheat on their stock options? And this kind of brings us to the issue of, I think, conflict of interest with physicians. It, it turns out that we all have a capacity to color the world in a light that suits us. We have benefits from seeing things in a certain way. And if, if company A offers us you know, more cookies or money or something, if we prescribe their medication, and if company B doesn't, could, we, could people who are really good people and don't want to lie still see reality in an objective way? What if, if somebody owns an equipment? Can they really see reality in, in an objective way without being influenced by the fact that they will benefit financially from getting a patient to use that equipment? And, you know, we did some surveys with physicians. Everybody sees conflict of interest in other people. Nobody sees it in themselves. That's kind of very standard, very standard result. But I think we actually have a very hard time seeing this. I think it's very much under the radar that these, these forces that shape us are not forces that we think of as, a, I'm cheating. They're really forces that change how we look at the patient. The rumor that, or the saying is that for a surgeon, every patient needs a surgery. Right? And it's not because they're bad people. It's because they're people. And because they see the world from this perspective, everything looks like it. And I think it's actually an incredible problem for the medical profession, in particular because of all the conflict of interest that are encompassed in this profession. And unless we understand it, we're going to make a lot of different mistakes. Dan, have you received much feedback from physicians in particular as to some of these concepts that were you expressed in your book or you shared in some of your publications? So, so you know, Groupman, he actually wrote a very nice blurb on my my book and gave me some comments and, and seemed to overall like it very much. I got a lot of interest. I gave quite a few talks in medical schools regarding conflict of interest because I think a lot of medical schools are struggling with this issue. We have drug reps who are becoming more and more desperate. There's all these issues in, in this very complex and dynamic market. Medical schools are really, really concerned with those issues. So I'm, I'm getting a lot of discussions on this. The, the AAMC just had a little write-up about this thing, including my work, it's a very good time. The, the other thing that is very interesting for me is the issue of informed consent. We have this, this idea that patients can be informed and they can actually make right decision, and we have all these decision aids that help patients make decisions, and physicians are trying to offload the decision on the patients. But we show that people are so limited in, in cognitive capacity, and people, you know, including me, and physicians who are experts in their field 
just don't understand, because they're experts, how difficult the decisions that they can easily make are for other people, how complex, how difficult, how impossible to make they are. So I'm also very worried about this issue of how much decision are we all trying to offload onto the patients. And finally, I'm getting a lot of requests from people who want to think about how does behavioral economics fit with self-help care. How do we get people to take better care of their health? How do we get people to show up to appointments on time? How do we get people to do preventative care? How do we get people to do colonoscopies? My thanks to Dr. Dan Ariely for being our guest. We've been talking about our patients, placebos, conflict of interest. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. To listen to our on-demand library, visit us at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. This is Dr. Jim Hu, Director of Minimally Invasive Urologic Oncology at Brigham Women's Hospital. You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals.